Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in <clears throat> we're going to be in Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12. If you want to kind of put a pin uh, in both of those, it'll be helpful for you as we kind of make our way through these. So, for the last couple of weeks, we have looked with the idea in this season of Advent, this season of of expectation, of waiting, and, and just thinking, kind of putting ourselves in the place of Israel. So as Israel just kind of languished and desired to want to see relief, they wanted to see what it looked like when God's provision, when his character inundated the land, when, what it looked like for where everywhere they went, with everyone they talked to, found themselves moving and engaging in the character of God when he truly ruled and reigned, not just in the land, but when he ruled and reigned in people's hearts. And so they had this sense of expectation that with the coming of the Messiah, when the coming of God's anointed one, he would usher in this new kingdom. He would usher in and make his kingdom pronounced and make it everywhere. And so there's this idea found in Isaiah. And Isaiah preaches, he prophesies, it's a really interesting time over a number of different kings and really this kind of tumultuous time in Israel's history as they're heading towards the exile. They're heading towards this punishment, this coming of the justice of God visited them on the basis of their disobedience, on the basis of their rebellion. Now, when I think about justice and kind of what justice looks like for me and, and kind of my interaction with justice, I most readily want to see justice visited upon those who violate my autonomy. They take something that belongs to me. They're mean to someone that I love. They have broken a law. They've broken, uh, broken a rule. But what we look at when we get into Isaiah 42 is that God's understanding of justice vastly departs from our sense of wanting right and wrong from our own vantage point. Justice, according to the Bible, flows from the character of God and is a reflection of his character in the land and everywhere he touches. Now, in Isaiah 41, what we see is that uh, the prophet is going through and he is uh, speaking, not in a really kind way, but he's speaking to the nation of Israel. And he describes them as a servant. He says, you're the servant of God. And as the servant of God, this is what you're meant to engage in. In verse 8, he said, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. And so he describes this process where he has invested himself in Israel. He has chosen them. He has selected them. But we recognize, if you read all of 41, that there is something that has gone awry. You get into verse 14, and what had once been high and exalting language now is not all that great. He says, fear not, you worm Jacob. I've been referred to a worm a number of times in my life, and never once as a term of endearment. Right? Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. They were seeking to uphold things on their own. They were seeking to accomplish it on their own. And one of the ways they sought to do this was the creation of idols. They wanted a, a talisman. They wanted some, some, uh, something they could hold, something they could maintain, something they could look to and have some sense that God was going to deliver them on the basis of this thing they had fashioned with their hands. So they created idols. And what Isaiah does is he begins to put their idols on trial and show them that their idols are empty and show them that those idols won't 
deliver them. And so in verse 29, closing out chapter 41, he says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So you place your faith, you place your hope in something that cannot deliver. You want justice, but you, you entrust justice to something that could never bring you freedom. You entrust justice to something that could never substantially change your life. You entrust it to something that is empty and void and meaningless. But he shows them how God is going to work in the most unlikely of ways to bring about a full and complete justice. Follow along with me as we read through verse 4. In Isaiah chapter 42, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So you have to think kind of in the mind, in the mind of uh, the men and women of Judah as they thought about and contemplated what it would look like for God to bring justice. The answer was simple to them. In order for God to end famine, in order for God to end injustice, in order for God to upend encroaching armies, he will do it through a massive display of his might. He will do it through military force. And this just kind of makes sense to us. If we see some injustice being perpetrated in a far and distant land, how do we accomplish justice? How do we right these things? We send our military. And it's through military might that we see injustice ended. And so, so too, they're in this vein and they have this understanding that if God is going to free them, if God is going to end injustice, that he has to accomplish it by a display of his might because nothing else is going to make it lasting. They can't have this little tete-a-tete where they say, hey, look, things are pretty rough. Do you mind mind kind of easing off of us and not doing things that violate our understanding of God and his character? And the opposing army would hear that and they'd say, you know, we should consider that. We've never considered how our, our, our evil and our you know, violations of your autonomy would make you feel, and so we're really sorry. We'll go back home. No, they say, well, that's the silliest thing we've ever heard. Of course we're going to come in and kill you and take your land and send you off into exile. That's what we do. We're an encroaching army. So God's answer to the encroaching army is a servant. Now in, verse, in chapter 41, he spoke of his servant. He talked about all of Israel. He said, Israel is my servant. And we saw that the way that servant moved was faulty, was frail, was broken, and was dishonest. And given to his own, that servant created idols. And so God says, I'm going to choose a different servant. And so he says, behold, my servant. Don't look at the idol. Look at my servant whom I uphold. This servant coming of God is held in his hand. This servant coming of God rests within his grip. This servant coming of God has no ability to be dishonest because his heart belongs solely to God. He says, behold, look at my servant. The one I uphold, the one that is near to me. He says, he is my chosen in whom my soul delights. When God contemplates, when he looks at his servant, this one who is going to bring justice, he considers him to be one whom he loves, whom he delights in. 
It's not just that he had this kind of altar call, this open investment. It says, who thinks he can come and be a servant to my people? Who thinks he can do this? And all these people came in and said, I don't have anything to do this weekend. I think I could be a servant to your people. And God says, oh, you meet all the qualifications. Come on for it. It's not just a man for the job. He's not just a person to fulfill. This is somebody whom God loves. This is someone whom God has chosen. This is someone whom the favor of God rests upon. Because look what he says next. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. The seal and promise of God rests upon his servant for God's action. He's not moving, engaging, and doing things uh, on his own whim or fancy. He's moving, engaging, and doing the things expressly that God has called him to do. And it's this. This one whom he upholds, this one who his soul delights in, this one whom his spirit rests upon, he will bring forth justice. Notice this, to the nations. Repeatedly, as we read through the Old Testament, there's this understanding within Israel and the people of Israel that they want God's justice to come for them, right? They want their land to be reestablished. They want their people to be kept safe. And they have a special place and provision within the providence of God. But what he says his servant is going to do here is to establish justice where? Not just in the land, but to the nations. So we see what God is doing here. He's throwing open the, the floodgates of his mercy. He's throwing, throwing open the floodgates of his grace. And he has entrusted his servant to establish justice, not just for the people of Israel, but for the people everywhere. Because we recognize that all of humanity has the image and the likeness of God, and everyone is deserving of God's justice. Everyone is deserving of God's compassion. Now, this is a big task. So he doesn't have to just defend off one foe that's coming near. He doesn't just have to keep one city. He has to bring justice everywhere for all peoples in all times. And you look at this and you say, well, this is an insurmountable task. This is something that quite, uh, is quite impossible. He has to marshal an army. He has to be boisterous. He has to be larger than life. He has to instill fear in the hearts of everyone who would stand against him. But look at how he describes it. He says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He is quiet. He is calm. He is humble. And he is peaceful. What an indictment on 95% of the politics we see. What an indictment of, of almost every leader we ever witness. Almost every form when humanity steps in and we seek to lead, we seek to lead by beating down the people around us, by bringing our force to bear on opposition. But when God wants to bring justice everywhere, He entrusts it to one who is faithful. He entrusts it to one who is loyal. And he entrusts it to one who is peaceful. He doesn't stand and belittle people. He doesn't bring them low. He's not building up his own name. He doesn't cry aloud in the streets. You see the restraint displayed in the one whom God would deem worthy to bring about justice in his earth. So we know his demeanor, we know his, his, his manner and the way he carries himself, but look at the, the tenderness and compassion described here in verse 3. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's so what Isaiah does, is he picks 
two of the most tender and two of the most uh, kind of at-risk objects he can find. And so he says, you understand the marshes and how these reeds grow up, these pieces of hollow grass grow up, and imagine one that the wind has come along and it is bent over and it is, it is broken. And imagine this other image, and so you've got a, a flask with oil in it, and, and the wick's not quite sinking down into the oil anymore, and so the flame is just kind of going out and going out and going out. And so if you were to walk quickly past it, it would snuff out the flame. So you need to understand, this one who's not going to raise his voice, this one who is upheld by God, the one in whom the Spirit of God rests, when he approaches these things that are in jeopardy, they are, set, they are kept safe by him. When he approaches this bruised reed, he makes sure that his presence and closeness to it preserves it. And when he comes close to this wick that is at risk for being burnt out, being quenched, his movement around it is so deft and careful that he ensures its longevity. He preserves it by the power of his presence. And you think that being so careful and, 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 and being so delicate around these things, how could he ever hope to accomplish anything? Look at what Isaiah promises. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so the question then becomes, how? Like, how is he going to do this? It makes no sense. He's not going to be loud. He's not going to marshal an army. He's going to be calm. He's going to be meek. He's going to be lowly. It's impossible. Verse 4 says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. And what Isaiah does is he appropriates this same imagery. He's not going to be broken. He's not going to be faint. He's not going to be discouraged. And so he takes the imagery of this reed that's been crumpled over. He takes the imagery of this, this, this flask, this, this wick that's, that's being snuffed out, that's being burned out. And he says, even though he comes close to the brokenhearted, he is not overcome. Even though he appropriates for himself and he's overcome with empathy, it does not distract him from his mission. not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. We see that the servant of God that he's describing here will not rest. He will not grow weary. He will not grow faint. He will not stop until God's justice is the language that is known all over the face of the earth. Until God's justice is what you and I wake up with. Until God's justice is what you and I go to sleep prophet Malachi, who exists after the exile, is, is recording kind of the people as they come back into the land and they're reconstructing the, reconstructing the temple, and he's dealing with their frustration. And in Malachi 2, the people cry out and says, where is this God of justice? See, they had this understanding that, yeah, okay, so we get it. We've been bad. We've got to go into exile for 70 years. We're going to come back into the land. You're going to build the temple, and your faithful presence will be here and everything's going to be great again. But they looked around and things weren't great. The former prosperousness wasn't there. Their, their kind of big name around town wasn't there. So they said, where is this God of justice? So even after the exile, we recognized that God's justice was not known in the land. And what we see in Jesus is the full articulation of the justice of God come close to man. But it's curious, isn't it? That in bringing justice to the earth, that God would send Jesus to be born in the midst 
of a small town born to no ones of no note. In the economy and the providence of God, what it looks like for him to bring justice to the earth is the action administration of God's justice to all those people that he encountered. And that's what we begin to see in, Gen- in uh, Matthew chapter 12. Now, Matthew chapter 12 is going to deal with the issue of the Sabbath. And so I just want to kind of catch everybody up. The Sabbath is instituted in the created order. In Genesis 2, we read these words. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So God had created all things. And on the seventh day, God finished his work from all that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work and all that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now, if you were to go through and to begin to look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and so you find them either in Deuteronomy or you find them in Exodus chapter 20, we read these words starting in Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you at the gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But as we come to Matthew chapter 12, we have this understanding that the Pharisees have radically misunderstood God's purpose for the Sabbath and have radically misunderstood what it is to be close to the heart of God. And so they have appointed themselves, in some sense, the administers of God's justice. And they had equated God's justice with rigorous rule-keeping. I think it's no small... Uh, No small indication that Matthew, when he closed out chapter 11, he quoted Jesus as having said to this, Come to me, all who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So right before this discussion of rest and Sabbath, he gives us this indication that Jesus desired for all to come to him to experience rest that only God can provide, and he can only provide it through the person of Jesus, his son. So Matthew 12 opens up, and this is the account. Jesus has been traveling around. He's been healing. He healed the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. And it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So that's the setting. It's the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Now, so here's the deal. The disciples are traveling from one place to another, and and they existed in a day that you could walk on your neighbor's property, and it was not a big deal. So I've got to go to that door. I don't have to walk around. I don't have to navigate it. And so I just walk right through the middle of their fields. And so the disciples are walking along, having some conversation, and this is what they do. They just kind of grab the the head of grain. They take it, do this number in their hands. They go, and they go, and they eat it. And then they said, mmm, that was tasty. I'm going to do that again. And so they're doing this over and over and over again. They're walking along. They grab the head of grain. They put it in their mouth. And, and, you know, no big deal. They're hungry. There's food there. It's no big deal. But the Pharisees are close at hand. And the Pharisees are close at hand. And we know that they must have been incredibly close because they're able to see exactly what is taking place, exactly what's transpiring. And so they see, in their minds, a gross violation of the character of God because these guys are engaged in disrespecting the Sabbath. 
Now, the Pharisees had been so concerned with the character of God that they created terrific, a terrific number of rules to uphold his character and especially to uphold the Sabbath restrictions. And so I just want you to understand from their mind, this is kind of what they saw. Disciples come along, they grab the head of grain, they pull it off. They are harvesting. Harvesting is work and you can't do this. They go through and they are kind of breaking it up. They are winnowing. Oh my goodness, they're threshing. What are you doing? They blow it off and so they're engaged in this winnowing. They eat it and they have this, this understanding that everything they've done is the exact same process you go through in food preparation. Food preparation is cooking. These guys are cooking in their hands. So they come over to Jesus, and they're incensed, and and their feelings are hurt, and they have this understanding that the disciples have engaged in this complete, reckless abandonment and sin against God. So they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You're welcome. Jesus looks to them, and he's going to correct them on two points. He says, have you not read... What David did when he was hungry to those who were with him. So he's, he's quoting out of 1 Samuel 21. How he entered the house of God and, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. This is what Jesus is doing. He's calling to question their understanding and reading of the Old Testament. He's not wanting to to lead them to some historical account so they could have a great afternoon as they read over it. He wants them to understand that that fundamentally their understanding of who God is and what it takes to uphold the justice of God is flawed, and it's flawed because their reading of the Old Testament is errant. So what he does is he invites them into the story. He says, do you not remember David? And they say, we know David. He said, what about when David rushed in and these guys were with him and they were hungry and David told them, in fact, he lied if you read 1 Samuel 21. He lied and said he was on a mission from the king and they shouldn't tell anybody. And so they gave him the bread and David ate and he gave it to his men and they ate as well. And the interesting thing we see therein is that the priests never once tell David he's wrong. The priests never once tell David he can't have it. Jesus is showing showing them that something greater than David was there. The one that stood before them was the fulfillment of all the prophecy that he himself in the flesh was one greater than David. The Pharisees have no response. So Jesus goes on. He says, or have you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So what is Jesus saying? He says, look, we know the prescription from Genesis 2. We know the prescription from Exodus 20 that you shouldn't work. You've got six days to work. You need to rest. You need to spend time with God. You need to commune with God. The Sabbath is designed so that you might find harmony and communion with God. Except for the priests, the Sabbath for them is not a day of rest. The Sabbath for them is a day of work. They've got to sacrifice the lambs. They have to uh, engage in a whole other host of temple processes. The priests are violating the Sabbath. The priests are engaged in the same thing. But they're guiltless. He's greater than David. But now he turns around and he points out explicitly, and I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus inviting them, Jesus sticking out and inviting them to come in and recognize what true justice is. 
that they have the ability in that time, in that moment, to serve him, to join with his disciples in following him. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than David. And look at his words as he quotes Hosea 6.6. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than the temple. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is correcting their understanding of injustice. He's correcting their understanding of what it is to be close to the heart of God. And the story continues. So the Pharisees follow him. And Jesus goes into a synagogue in this next account. He says, he went on from there and he entered into a synagogue. And there was a man with a withered hand. As you can imagine, the Pharisees are, are, are going along with him. They're super frustrated that he's kind of caught them in this deal. They've not had a good witty response. As they walk along, they said, should have said that. Let's catch him next time, and then we're going to do this. So they walk into the synagogue, and they quickly begin to fan the room and say, this guy, Jesus, like he can't see a person hurt and not come close to them. Who's somebody that's hurt? You, withered hand, come close. So they bring this guy close, and they ask him this question, and they think they're going to trip him up. And they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? See this guy here, his hand is withered. They don't see him as a person. They see him as a vehicle of entrapment. They see him as a method to accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath yet again. So Jesus says to them, he casts it in this way. He says, which one of you, if you had a sheep, if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, would not he take hold of it and lift it out? He invites them into the story. He says, look, you know what this is. You would be merciful to a sheep. You'd be merciful to something with no soul. You'd be merciful to something that you could replace. You'd be merciful to something that is not someone made in the image and the likeness of God. Which one of you would do this? And so he goes on, he says, or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Mark, he asked the question, he says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Do you see what he's done there? They had so restricted their ability to do anything on the Sabbath that when God put something good before them, when God placed something in their path and they had the ability to engage, they had the ability to overcome, they had the ability to fundamentally change somebody's life, they wouldn't do. Because they were too concerned with keeping rules. They were too concerned with keeping up appearances and they were too captivated with the depraved understanding of justice, which in reality is gross injustice to everybody in need. Then he said to the man, Jesus looks at this guy. He's healed the paralytic. He's restored sight to the blind. He looks to this man and he says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched his hand out and it was restored and healthy like the other. Now I want you to catch this. It's not a parlor trick. The Pharisees are the one who chose the guy out from there. Likely he was known in the community as the guy who had the, the misshapen hand. They knew him. They recognized him. And when he sticks his hand out and it's fully restored, the Pharisees don't see that and say, now we have seen the justice of God visited upon the lowly. 
Verse 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And the basis of Jesus bringing justice to this man, God's presence close in his life, they did not see it as something wonderful that had happened in this man's life. They saw it as an affront to God. Because Jesus had violated their understanding of justice. Jesus had violated their sense of right and wrong, but we see that justice does not flow from our failing sense of right and wrong. It flows from the heart and from the character of God. Now let's come full circle. Verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. Everyone that came into contact with Jesus when he had the ability to fundamentally change their lives, he did. Every single one. There were no limits to his compassion. There were no limits to his heart for humanity that so desperately needed to be close to God. And he ordered them not to to make this known, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes this same thing. But I want you to see how Matthew has changed it in recording Jesus' words. He says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. Every single thing Jesus did in the administration of his miracles and in the exalting of God's name and in the extending of justice was as God had designed, and it pleased him. He said, I'll put my spirit upon him. What Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 42 came to fruition, was seen evident in Matthew 3 when Jesus is baptized, when his cousin lowers him into the water and he comes back out and the spirit of God descends like a dove and it says, in this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And look what he says here. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Matthew wants us to understand that that those who the Jews thought unworthy and and, and unacceptable, these are the particular people, all those outside of his chosen people are those whom God has destined to receive his justice. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In fact, we would say and we would read, even to the point of death, he didn't cry out. Even at the point of being mocked and being beaten, Jesus didn't cry out when he could have marshaled an army, when he could have beckoned all to come to him, when he could have laid them all over the power of his word. He did not cry out. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus intentionally sought out the marginalized. He intentionally sought out those whose society had no worth and had no value, and he came close to them. Jesus was not concerned that someone would see his actions, would see his behavior, and would think less of him. He saw those whose society had beaten and broken, and he knew them to be bruised reeds. And he came close to them. He saw those whom society had taken all that they had, that their flame was burning out, and he came close to them. Jesus spent so much time with the people that that, that polite society had no time for that he was known as a drunkard and a glutton. People thought Jesus was wasting his time with people. And what he recognized is that we miss the heart of God when we set value on people. We miss the heart of God. When we say that there's this strata of engagement, that God wants us to hang out with our peer group, when God wants us to spend time with people that are easy, Jesus came close 
to the downtrodden. He came near to the broken because he recognized that it is them that are desperately in need of a Savior, and they know it. It's so incredibly difficult to share the gospel with somebody that's kind of this middle class and sees themselves moving upward. Because they have this sense of independence. They have this sense that I have arrived and I am arriving. That life is good, but it could be better. So Jesus spent his time with people who they thought life was bad and it was getting worse. People, when we look at them, we say they're broken. People, when we look at them, we say they are marred. People, when our society looks at them, they say they have no value. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Jesus' work is not finished. Jesus' work on the cross is complete. He extends salvation to all, but he is still bringing victory Because verse 21 says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Do you know that Jesus is still the hope for all men? They waited longing for justice to be met out in the land, to see their enemies vanquished, to see all wrongs made right. Today we recognize that the final full fulfillment of this rests in Jesus, the one in whom we place hope, the one in whom we place confidence. We look around and there are, there are a vast number of atrocities and injustices being perpetrated in our neighborhoods, in our country, and in our uh, kind of way of life. Yesterday, I read an article about this seven-year-old. She and her dad packed up and left Guatemala. And they walked over a thousand miles for the beacon of hope and freedom that they thought rested in this country. Seven-year-old girl. I have children who are nine, six, and three. This is not hard to imagine that things would be so bad for them that they would pack up and they would walk a thousand plus miles that when they finally made the border and they turned themselves in, this little girl running 105 fever dies. Injustice is at home. Injustice is at hand. Everyone whom God gives us the freedom and ability to engage in, to correct and right the injustice in their life and to bring the justice of God to bear for them. If he gives you the ability, you have no excuse. If he places them in your path, you cannot go around. He sends his church to be a beacon, to be an advancing army of his justice and his goodness. Will we show hope? Or will we be the Pharisees? <clears throat> Rigorous rule keeping. Keeping the starving hungry. Keeping the broken at bay. Or will we show them where hope is? Where our hope lies? And will we join with Jesus in radically upending the injustice that he places us to rail against? instead of the inconvenience that discomforts us in our lives. Let me pray for us.
Father God, you are good and do good. Your justice is overwhelming. So much greater than I can fashion in my mind, so much greater than I can articulate with my tongue, because to do so would be to describe you in perfection, and I fail. God, would you cause us to crave for your justice to be visited upon this land, that your justice will be known from coast to coast, that everywhere we have opportunity to go in business and travel, that we would be the beacons of your justice, that we would be those who point to the hope that is able to be had in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be the doers of good. God, I pray for those this morning who have yet to place their hope and trust in you, that they would see in you one who is good, who is gracious. They would see in your son Jesus one who has provided for them a sacrifice for their sins, that they might know you through the sacrifice of Jesus, him who has died and him who is high and exalted, the risen Christ. God, would you guide us in our worship and would our lives be worshiped to you? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.